0: Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide also known as Hig Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a Measure of the Man through his Measure of the Year. Born in Vancouver, Brian Brett studied literature at Simon Fraser University from 1969 to 1974. He's an award-winning author of 14 published works in fiction, poetry, and memoir, and has been a journalist for 50 years. In the early 70s, he began working as a freelance journalist and critic for various publications and newspapers, including The Globe and Mail, The Toronto Star, The Victoria Times Colonist, The Vancouver Sun, Books in Canada, and The Vancouver Province, where he was the poetry critic. His journalism has appeared in almost every major newspaper in Canada, and his essays in most of the major magazines. He inaugurated the BC Poetry in the Schools program in 1974, introducing children in schools to world poetry. He's been a member of organizations ranging from Penn International, the League of Canadian Poets, the BC Federation of Writers, and the Writers Union of Canada. He's been an instructor at the UBC Master of Fine Arts Creative Writing Program in Fiction and Poetry. His best selling memoir, Trauma Farm A Rebel History of Rural Life, was a 2009 Book of the Year in both the Times Literary Supplement and the Globe and Mail. It won the Writers' Trust Canadian Nonfiction Prize and the BC Booksellers Choice Prize. And that, for our purposes, is where we come closer to home because Brian Brett worked extensively on Trauma Farm while he was the 2007-2008 Writer-in-Residence at Hague brown House. Brian Brett's connection to the Hague Browns and Hague Brown House did not end there. In 2011, he wrote the foreword for the most recent printing of Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. Brian, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you for the introduction. Glad to have you with us. You would like to do a reading for us, and this would be from the month of January.
1: First of all, I really would like to say that the Measure of the Year is one of those great books. In fact, I realized after when I was doing the introduction for the book, that I basically mimicked his style for Drama Farm. And that structurally, it was very similar to Measure of the Year. It didn't even occur to me at, at the time. But when I was doing this introduction, I suddenly saw all the similarities. And that's the way that Rod really influenced me. He was what they call a really supreme stylist, in the most marvelous way, his style is invisible, right? He's not a fancy, flashy writer, so you don't see what he's doing. But as I was going through it for this introduction, I suddenly realized what he was doing and how easily he captured your attention as a reader and so on. And what made this book so great is that utter simplicity. He talked like somebody would talk in explaining things, but in such a way, you just became wrapped. Art or science? A little subchapter. From time to time, in misguided moments, I used to say in public that I write books to make money. It always surprised me and often annoyed me a little to find out that this upset most of the people who heard me. I used to wonder why they should consider it estimable in a banker to bank for money, in a manufacturer to manufacture, a policeman to police, a lawyer to argue, a farmer to plow, all for money, but quite outrageous for a writer to write for money. What better, I wondered, do they want of me than a professional job and doesn't A writer have to eat? I felt very hard-boiled and realistic when I was thinking all that. Very professional and competent, but it occurs to me now that what I said was quite wrong and that my hearers were quite right to be upset. I don't write books solely or even primarily to make money. If I did, I should certainly write different books nor am I very deeply concerned about money. If I were, I should turn to some sensible occupation like manufacturing, automobiles, or digging ditches. What I do is write books and hope occasionally that that they will make enough money for me to go on eating and writing books. And I think that is true of a satisfying number of people including people who dig ditches and manufacture automobiles.
0: Now, a part of me coming upon that passage for the first time thinks that Rod Haig Brown here is speaking to the hearts of writers everywhere in part a frustration with people who suggest that writing is not a pursuit worthy of compensation. I take it that that passage spoke to you as well. Oh, yeah. What he's saying is I write for the beauty of writing, but
1: it's good that I can make enough
0: money to keep writing. Oh, exactly. Do you find people who still find it, in his words, quote, quite outrageous for a writer to write for money? Not so much
1: anymore. It used to be that way, but people have come to accept writers, <laughs> at least to a certain degree. There's are sort of weird expectation of writers, and usually the expectation that the writer be a great artiste and all that is a misguided one. But really what they're trying to do
0: is communicate in the best way possible. And over and above that belief on the part of some that writing isn't really work. If anybody believes
1: that they're nuts, right? I mean that's silly. You know, I always get oh when I retire I'm gonna write my novel or uh oh write my memoir and that's a joke. But Most people understand it's a ferocious job. And just by going off syndrome a little bit, you could wreck a book.
0: Now, you were the fourth writer in residence at Hague Brown House. The program began in 2004 and continues to this day with a bit of a break for the COVID pandemic. How did it come to pass that you got to be the 2007, 2008 writer in residence? I have no idea.
1: (laughs) I think it was Sandra Parrish just wrote me an invitation and I just went, oh boy, would I ever like to do that? Because I knew the house. I'd seen it before in my travels and stuff. And and I just thought it would be lovely to live and to write, which it turned out to be. That back room off the main bedroom is where I wrote a full draft of
0: Trauma Farm. Now we're going to get to that too. How did you first hear of Roderick Hague Brown. What was your first exposure to him?
1: He was legendary when I was quite young. I think I met him a couple of times, but it was always at literary soirees, yada, yada. He was a very quiet man. He did his duty at whatever event, and then he went on. And so I I never got close to him, though I did get close to his writing. And even before the measure of the year, I um, was following... I'm just trying to look here. When was the Measure of the Year? Measure of the Year, published 1950. Yeah, oh, shit. that's quite early on. Because I saw Fisherman's Fall and first, and I read them. I immediately discovered what a stylist he was. And I didn't really quite figure it out because, like I said, his writing is very simple. And he doesn't show off, but he's beautiful. You're just gone when he... um write something, you just start following it and away you go. And so I would do it with these books were just about fishing. He did a a year overall one, four books, like Fisherman's Fall and so on. And each one would be fishing in a certain season. And he was notorious. He was read all over the world for just fishing books. Indeed. I would literally put that in quotation marks. Just fishing books, because that's all what they were about. But they were marvelous books, as he was discussing a particular fly, or the way a river laid out, and and how to work your way up at casting it, and so on. Technique, all technique. But it was like not even technical
0: writing. It was just beautiful. The Writer-in-Residence program that started in 2004 has become very popular with writers over the years, and here's what some of them have had to say. From Dave Carpenter, Writer-in-Residence from 2005 to 2006, and again 2014 and 2015 – I'm happy to reaffirm that this is the best job I've ever had. Writing every morning in historic Hague Brown house and engaging with the writers one-on-one reading and critiquing their manuscripts in the afternoon makes for a joyful and stimulating experience. Trevor Harriet, writer in residence 2011, 2012. For me, the Hague Brown residency has been a sanctuary away from the distractions that sometimes slow me down as a writer. The house, the river, And the property have been an inspiration on many levels, and I have had some of my best writing days there. Likewise, Charlotte Gill, Writer-in-Residence 2012-2013. I've accomplished much more than I thought I might at the start, mostly because of the quiet, creative space that the house seems uniquely designed to provide. And there is a common theme. It's almost like it's haunted. Indeed. Andrew Nikiforek, Writer-in-Residence 2013-2014, I believe the Hague Brown house on the Campbell river embodies the spirit of its celebrated owners. The place literally welcomes writers with a warm and quiet embrace. And Patricia Robertson writer in residence, 2010, 2011. I expected to spend six months writing the final draft of my novel and completed it in two months. Instead an unheard of speed for me. It must be the writing saturated walls at the Hague Brown house that make it possible to be so prolific.
1: Well, that house was, yeah, totally saturated. It was like a real house of uh, treasures. And walking that river was the same in many ways. I mean, Rod did uh, some amazing stuff in attempting to save that river. I mean, the fight against the dam was one of his greatest losses because the dam went through. But he still managed to do all kinds of things out of it. And he had them so intimidated that they actually did all the settings with him diving in the river. And he would dive as he would release water and so on. And he would tell them, you know, shout out what the individual levels were doing. And this way, they managed to save that river beautifully. And then they created those side trails where the fish would go up to spawn. And those spawning channels, there's only a few of them, but they're just gorgeous. And they just filled with fish and usually bears, too, because a lot of times I would go in there and then I'd run into a bear fishing way and I'd sneak up behind it and scare it. (laughs) That was pretty evil of me, but it was just something I couldn't
0: resist doing. Now, you mentioned in the foreword that he was, as an activist environmentalist, he was often able to turn even his losses into victories, acknowledging them and demanding whatever concessions could be achieved.
1: That was his greatest part as an activist. But This is in the 50s. He was doing this. He was before environmentalist was a
0: word. He was just out there trying to protect this river. And he spooked them pretty bad. <laughs> now, you cite a wonderful quote of his from Measure of the Year. It's almost breathtaking in its Hague brown simplicity and complexity. At the same time, Haig-Brown says, conservation is fair and honest dealing with the future, usually at some cost to the immediate present. It makes you think of the cost to himself and to the river and to the conservation efforts in general. This was no easy thing to do. This required an awful lot of commitment and determination.
1: Oh, it sure did. I mean, you see the pictures of him in a scuba suit beneath the dam, you know. But that course that he laid in that preserved that river till today and rebuilt his fish. It's a very good spawning river. The only thing is the dam up there, before he could get a hold of the buggers, they pretty well destroyed the giant Thais because they used to get these 100-pounders up there. They disappeared afterward, and he figured out, and one of the first to figure this out was that individual varieties of salmon came from specific spots and rivers. So there's a creek that goes into the lake up above, where these salmon went up to breed, but because that run was interfered with, they were lost. There's still 80 pounders in that. And I'll tell you, when I saw him diving in, I thought, well, I'm going to dive this river. And I actually dived it down to the tidal flats. So I followed the whole river. And down there, a couple of spots, it got really fast, but it was still gorgeous.
0: And I would be followed by these torpedoes, these huge salmon. And they sure look big and fast when you're coming up to them face to face. And
1: you'll look at this saying, God, that salmon is bigger
0: than I am. It's something anybody who has the capacity and the ability should do at some point. Swimming with the salmon has become quite an exercise here. And of course, you want to do it in the late summer and into the fall when the fish are coming back to the river.
1: I had to go back to do
0: that. Everybody should do that once in their lives. I'm sure Rod Hig Brown had an appreciation for this. There are places, many of them, where once you get into the river, you have to become comfortable with surrendering yourself to the river. It's not like you can decide, oh, I'm just going to stop here and get out. <laughs> You're along for the ride, and it's going to take you.
1: Well, the first time, it took me all the way down. And I was suddenly going like three miles an hour, it seemed, over rocks and stuff. Suddenly you're sailing down this river under three feet deep. And then you hit this big boulder that goes right to the surface. And a lot of times I would have to just whoop and skate over these rocks. Oh yeah. Didn't get scratched or anything.
0: That's what a good wetsuit is for. <laughs> well, I didn't have one. <laughs> I think I had one after that adventure. Let's come back to Hague Brownhouse for a moment. You know, the previous writers as uh, as we were just quoting here earlier have commented that, you know, from the moment that they step into the house, it feels comfortable and it feels like maybe Rod and Ann have just stepped out. Can you share with us some of your first impressions when you first came into the house?
1: My first impression was that this guy's like my dad, even his carpentry. And he built a lot of that stuff by himself. It just made you feel comfort, right? I spent a lot of time at the kitchen table I spent a lot of time when I turned into my office and I'd go down and have a drink with Rod, right?
0: So I wasn't supposed to do that, but, you know, I would sneak a scotch down there. I'm sitting at that desk right now without scotch, I might add, but this is the place you are surrounded by books. The river is flowing by outside. It is, there is a magic here, no doubt. And then outside there,
1: every once in a while, you see a bear wandering through the yard one day I was sitting in the office, and suddenly the lights went on in the um, carport, and I thought, what the hell is that? And I ran up the stairs and opened the basement door, and there was a big set of bear prints going by the door. It was going upstairs, so I ran around upstairs and out the front door, and I got there, no bear, it was already gone. But it had climbed up on the front porch, the cement porch there, and sat down and surveyed the traffic for a minute. There was
0: this bottom print and the paw prints of it going across the street. Now, while you were here, you were working on Trauma Farm. Some would say your most successful work. Yep. You've mentioned how... There are similarities between Measure of the Year and Trauma Farm. Before we get into that, though, do you echo those thoughts of some other writers from this desk? Incredibly comfortable house to write in. It seems a prolific place to be, potentially.
1: You get a lot of work done. Yeah. I went right through that whole book and had it all set out. I had to do a couple of revisions afterwards, but the guts of the book was there. Only 200,000 words or so. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, I didn't even think of measure of the year. What he does in measure of the year, he does that farm and house over a year. And I did mine over 18 years. The history on when we were actually on trauma farm. So I sort of did a yearly account. It's not as rigorous to lay out as what Rod did in
0: measure of the year. But it's the same kind of pattern. Is it safe to say that the experience of living at Above Tide or Hig Brown House has changed you? Uh, Yeah, I'd say so. How so?
1: It made me really comfortable at Trauma Farm. I realized what I was doing at Trauma Farm was right because I saw what Rod did,
0: right? It was very similar. The house is a link, of course, to Rod Haig-Brown and his ideas. You said in the foreword that Measure of the Year captures both Haig-Brown and his ideas with the common sense and luminous year-long ramble into nature and family and charm and community. That's quite a mouthful.
1: Well, it's what he did. And that's why I think Measure of the Year is his best book. I love Fisherman's Fall and the fishing books and so on, and nobody has written fishing books like he wrote. They're really quite marvelous books, but they're just fishing books. You know, it's really, it's quite amazing what he did, that he would just talk about fishing on the different rivers up above the Campbell River and stuff. You would understand everything, and you'd want to go out there and fish the river with them.
0: The great poet Patrick Lane says, Hig Brown's prose was, quote, so clean and simple. It's like children's writing, yet it's deep and beautiful.
1: That's exactly what I was saying about the style. The cleanliness of his writing and the rejection of adjectives and so on is quite amazing in the book. Did that
0: impact on your approach to writing, particularly Trauma Farm?
1: I think it did. I just didn't know it. I sort of realized afterwards, because I was a bit more flowery before that. And with Trauma Farm, I really learned to say simple things in simple ways. I didn't have a clue. I was just writing a book. But I didn't realize that he created this vision for me without even me knowing it. It was only after the book was out for a few years that I really realized it, especially when I was doing the introduction
0: for a measure of the year. How did that come to pass that you would be doing the forward for the most recent printing of Measure of the Year? That's not an honor that is just handed out offhand. I don't know how that came to pass. <laughs> I would just ask, and I said,
1: Oh boy. Yes, I would really love to do that because I didn't think Rod got the credit he deserved as a writer. When I read Measure of the Year again for doing the introduction. I understood so much more as a writer.
0: You also mentioned this practice, and I, and a lot of us have talked about this, whether it was actually, you know, that could have been the case or not, where he would place the wine glass out on the lawn. Oh, yeah. Now, so I've had some very knowledgeable fly fishers say to me, "Now you couldn't do that because you'd knock the glass over. Maybe it was a hat. Maybe it was a dish.
1: I was regaled with a few different versions of Rod showing off his fly fishing. He would do that on that right side line going down to the river, and everybody said it was a wine glass. I think for him, the idea of the wine glass was just too perfect to resist. It shows a flair for the dramatic. Oh, he was. It must have been a sight, ain't. Right? But I was told that by at least three different people who weren't there on the same occasion. Anyways, I don't know how
0: often he got it in the wine glass, but he was determined to try. Now, I've asked other guests this question, and maybe from a writer's perspective, you have another look at it, but he refers to this river in Measure of the Year, not as the Campbell River. He refers to it as the Elk River, and he refers to Campbell River, the community, as Elkhorn. Any theories on why he would do that?
1: I don't know what he was doing. He didn't want to be autobiographical, right? It was it was so obviously autobiographical. But he thought he would keep that distance by renaming it all. And that's why he did the Elkhorn and Elk River and all that stuff. It was just simple to um, muddy the waters a little bit.
0: Now, you've been part of the Writers in Residence program, as have many others been. And you've been the writer-in-residence at a number of different locations.
1: That's one that I would like to return to and go back to. You know, I've done the Yukon and all over the place. And the Yukon was pretty good. But nothing was like that house. That house was so familiar. It was like my father was there with the whole thing. And the place kept reminding me of him.
0: And so the concept of writer-in-residence, which is used here and in many other locations, is a sound one.
1: It's not always like that. Sometimes it's just sort of a working place. And you don't, you know, yes, I've been to some libraries and it's pretty boring. I liked them um, being at uh, Purdy's Place, Ontario. That was another nice one because it was so Al and so Ureth. In fact, I'd take out Ureth to uh, lunch or something every once in a while. And it was like Al being there. And in many ways, Al and Rod, you know, I mean, Al was a bit more exuberant, I think, than uh,
0: Rod, but they're very alike. Now, you've said that Measure of the Year stands out among all the writings of Haig Brown it is, in your words, his finest work. From your perspective, why do you think 50 years, more than 50 years, let's say 70 years later, we are still talking about Measure of the Year?
1: Rereading it again after 40 years or whatever. It's like, this is a really good book. And what he was doing was so invisible, I never even saw it the first time I read it.
0: What was he doing?
1: The style and the way he was evoking the spirit of that place. You didn't study it or anything, you were just you were just there.
0: And that was his talent. You call him the inspiration for hundreds and later thousands of environmentalists. Well, he invented it practically. His fight with the dam was just
1: legendary in the 60s and 70s. It was a mano a mano battlefield that he lost. But he still did so much good in that loss that it actually later became a kind of weird victory. The dam went through, but it was so influenced by Rod that he made that river rebuild his salmon runs and stuff.
0: So if we're calling him the inspiration for hundreds and later thousands of environmentalists, is it maybe safe to say he holds a similar position in terms of inspiring writers? No, because I don't
1: think most writers realize how good he is. You know, I didn't even know that when I was really there. I knew he was really good and I loved his work and I loved his fishing books because I'm a fisherman too.
0: It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Have we missed anything? Is there anything else you'd like to comment on in regards to measure of the year?
1: It's really important to recognize him as a stylist. And that's what took me a while to recognize. His stylist was so good and so (laughs) invisible that you didn't notice. It wasn't when I was reading his books but was when I started studying them afterwards, both the fishing ones and Measure of the Year. I think Measure of the Year is a Canadian classic, and I hope that it stays around, and I believe it will, for a long time. I wish I, you know, knew more about him, right? Because he was such a wonderful individual, and he was so unassuming, and he he wasn't a show-off. He just did it.
0: Brian, it's been a real pleasure. I thank you again for taking the time to share your thoughts.
1: You're welcome. And thank you for doing this. It's really important to keep reminding people we have this great genius in our backyard.
0: Well, I thank you again for your time, Brian. And take care, my friend. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. You can link to the Hague brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Hague Brown House heritage site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.